You're listening to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. Conversations with creatives during the quarantine. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. I am Steve Jenkins. Uh, first, I wanted to say thanks for all the positive feedback from last week's episode. Uh, that was sort of a comeback episode, and my guest was the great Steve Lawson. I don't know that every episode going forward is going to be three hours long, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, so last week, as I was putting that episode together, the news had come out that we lost the great guitar god himself, Eddie Van Halen. And now people primarily know me as a bass player, but Edward Van Halen is one of my all-time musical heroes. Van Halen is one of my all-time favorite bands, probably in my top five. And last week, even though I really wanted to say something about it, I wasn't really able to put any part of my sadness and grief into words, and I was just trying to process the loss of someone of that magnitude. Van Halen has been a big part of my musical life from the very beginning. And I'm fairly certain my older brother was listening to Van Halen 1 in 1978, which means at three years old, I probably also was rocking out to Running With The Devil and I heard Eruption and all those great songs like Atomic Punk, Feel Your Love Tonight, I'm The One, etc. Yesterday, I did an Instagram Live with my good buddy who's also been on this show, Adam Dorn. We talked yesterday for Van Halen for about two hours. And I think one notable thing for me is that when I really became aware of music as a young person, it was in the early 80s. And that was a time when Van Halen, Prince, Michael Jackson, and David Bowie were giants roaming the earth. And they all had music uh, on the radio and on MTV. And to think that none of those folks are around anymore, one, it's extremely sad, but it's also a sobering reminder that, you know, nothing, nothing great lasts forever. I can't really eulogize Eddie Van Halen because I didn't know him as a person. But it feels that way because I've heard and known his playing seemingly for what feels like forever. And I've also been endlessly inspired by his contributions to playing, his forward thinking as far as how he approaches different techniques on the guitar, and um, even the way he kind of pioneered all kinds of stuff in terms of gear. There's a whole lot of stuff that he basically helped invent and invented himself in some cases, things that never existed before, that basically changed the way guitars are built. Just about every musician I know is feeling the same kind of loss about Eddie Van Halen. In fact, at the last minute, I decided to ask today's guest to hop on Zoom so we could reflect on the genius that was and still is in our hearts, Eddie Van Halen. My guest today is the great guitarist, Chris Bono. I met Chris in 2003 through our mutual friend and also another guest who's been on this podcast, David Fuzinski, while doing a thing at Berklee College of Music. And I think it was like a guitar week thing or something. It was like a summer program. Chris and I uh, have been friends ever since. We've played a lot of music together. A good bit of that music has been done with the great drummer Tobias Ralph, who some of you might know from when he played with Adrian Ballou and 24-7 Spies and a bunch of other people. Chris and I did a True Fire instructional play-along course with Keith Carlock called In the Jam. Uh, ours was called NYC Funk. 
I think all of us were living. I think Keith was still living in New York, and I was still living in New York. That was a fun thing. And then I've also played bass on a lot of Chris's instructional courses, which brings me to the next thing. Besides being a kick-ass guitarist, Chris is a kick-ass guitar instructor. And uh, he has over 40 courses for True Fire. He's written articles for Guitar Player Magazine. He's made instructional content for guitarinstructor.com. Besides that, he taught at Berklee College of Music for a few years. I think he was the one that invented the effects lab with pedals and stuff. And he's also got several books out published by Hal Leonard. There's one about sight reading for guitar that's really popular. He also did a book on Ableton Live, which I actually have and found really useful. Chris and I chatted back in June, and our conversation begins talking about the new hustling challenges brought on by the pandemic. And don't forget to stick around at the end for our conversation about Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, I think the, the hustle, the hustle element has changed a lot um, in terms of what people do now in music. And I don't even mean like post-COVID-19. I just mean in general, like it just seems like a lot of people are not making most of their income from, from just playing gigs. Well, as we both know, no one's making their money from playing any gigs. But yeah, you're right. It's I think what the what the pandemic did was pushed everybody in a direction that you were going to you're going to have to inevitably go in anyway. Yeah. And now everybody's in it. And uh, you know, I, I like I've said before a couple times, I feel bad for close friends that are scurrying to get something together just to not even stay relevant, but just to fucking pay their bills. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I've been dialed into some of this in some extent since 2006. You right. Know, so that's back when I first started teaching on Skype, um, which was by accident. You know, you know, you know how who got me into it and who got me into many things? Jimmy Archie. Oh, really? One. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy Archie called me up one day. This was back when I was living in Massachusetts. So I would see him on a, you know, a sort of regular basis through the first act thing. Mm-hmm. And he called me up and said, hey, man, would you you know, I have somebody who wants to take lessons with you, but they're in New Jersey. Uh, so, you know, you're up here. Would you, you want to try to do it online? And uh, yeah, why not? I, I, that was just when I also had the camera gear from, um, from Guitar One, because they sent me up. They set me up with a rig so I can do the stuff for the magazine, because I had left New Jersey, couldn't make the commute into New York easily. And uh you know, that's how I got into it. And it was Steve Padula from uh, Thursday. He was my first online um, student. And, wow. Uh, that's exactly how it started. And it just from there, just, you know, it, you know, it built up like anything. The Berkeley thing helped, though, because the Berkeley thing had me on that map where people were looking me up and they were not able to study with me privately if they wanted to do something like that. So it made sense and it just kind of blew up from there. It was all perfect timing, but... You know, but that was how many years ago? It was 14 years ago. So. Yeah, 14 years. I mean, you were probably the first person and I knew who was doing that at all. Like, I remember, I mean, did you ever have any students that uh, did, like, correspondence lessons or anything like that? Like, I had one guy once, he wanted me to, like, record some stuff on a mini disc and then send him the mini disc. Like, he, he had some stuff. He wanted to learn, so I, you know, it was kind of like through the mail. This wasn't actually that far 
back. I mean, this was like mid two thousands, but it was bef- right before any of this stuff was was common. You know, like I think there was a wave of computers um, like before MacBook Pro. Like so, whatever the laptop was, like the what was it? Like the Power PC. Yeah, PowerBook. And then even the computers, like the the webcam wasn't something that was built into anything people bought at this point. There wasn't an abundance of cameras. So there was like correspondence lessons, you know, which I think was a model that worked for like, you know, the guru type people like Charlie Banacas and stuff like that. Like people would, my friend did some lessons with him like that, where he record some stuff and then Charlie Mm -hmm. would listen to it and then say some stuff back and send it back. But, um, like, did you ever get into that, or was it just was Skype sort of like the, the touchstone for the? No, it was, it was Skype. I never really, I never really did the correspondence thing. I did a little bit with video though. Um, uh, previous to previous to True Fire starting the first round of, like the first iteration of the online platform where we were hosting classrooms you know where we, we were the administrators of our own classrooms which really is a video exchange program but it's it's more connected than it is a correspondence thing where you never really communicate with that person i mean i never communicated with anybody in real time in the guitar gym thing you know in the classroom mm-hmm. but we had we had much easier access it wasn't like you sent me something i got it worked it through you know sent you stuff back and you had and that was the only correspondence like you had to wait in Guitar Gym, I mean, of course, you have to wait for me to respond, but it was just way quicker. Let's just put it that way. But I never did the mail thing. I tried to do the mail thing as a student, and I found it really um, disconnected. It just didn't work for me. I tried to do it with um, this guy who taught at New School. Um, it, you know, it was, it was no, it was no, nothing to do with him. Rory Stewart, he's still there, actually. Okay. Uh, I tried to do it with him and it just, it didn't click with me. Um, so no, I never did the correspondence thing in any way, but the video exchange thing that I was doing previous to guitar gym the classrooms, I did it for like a second with one or two guys. And then, you know, then I didn't have to because, because like we were just saying before um, we got on the call, um, Truefire basically stepped in and provided the platform where they are providing everything plus the maintenance. So they are providing the server, they're providing the bandwidth, um, they're providing the IT, and all I was doing was just doing my job. They took their cut, I got my cut, the student got their 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 service, and it was great. And it's been great ever since. You know, it's it's uh, it's still going on. Now we have channels, but back then they were classrooms. Yeah. Um. How? I mean, so I guess, you know, like pre, you know, before the pandemic shit, like. Do you still have, or was there still like a pretty decent roster of in-person students or has it all kind of gone to, to online and stuff? Like when, like, how did that, how did that change? Um, previous to, you know, having no choice with that. Yeah. I had very, I have very few students coming here. Like it, it's really guys who live close. I know, them. you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely something I don't make, um, uh, I, I don't make that an option, really. Um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I don't have to explain this to anybody, man. I mean, this world has gotten weirder and weirder. So the days of someone just calling up and saying, hey, I'd like to take lessons with you, and then you freely, 
you know, letting them come into your home is just, it's just not really, it's not realistic anymore. It's not, it's not even smart. Um, but I, um, I, I, even besides that, everything just, the, the, the Skype thing blew up. So there really wasn't any time to, um, to do that. There was that, that part of what I need was being satisfied with the Skype thing. Yeah. Uh, like I, you know, I, I, over the years, Wednesday developed into, I probably said this to you, you know, and, and, and everybody knows at this point, don't even try to talk to me on Wednesday because Wednesday is my day. You know, that's why I've always called it for years. I've called it my mortgage and taxes day because that day I start, um, man, I start as early as, you know, depending, you know, some guys are in and out, but there's a core, core group there that's there every week. And I start generally about nine o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning, and I don't get done until about midnight. You know, there's little breaks here and there, but what I do is I follow the sun. So I, I literally, the t- I, I go around the globe throughout the day as time zones change. That, you know, there'll be a group of guys from, like early in the morning is the United States. It's both early for us. Then in the afternoon is Europe. So it's, it's um, or early afternoon because it's evening for them. And then as night comes, I start kind of, you know, going back to the United States, but the West Coast. So it's earlier for them. And then, you know, it progresses into, like, my last student is in Australia. Oh, wow. I start him at 11 o'clock at night, my time. I forgot what time it is for him the next calendar day. They're in the future. Yes, he literally is. He's literally in the future. It's it's wild. So, you know, so I either early, early in the morning or late at night, is the guys that are, you know, in the Pacific. And then as the day goes along, I go, you know, just as the world literally spins around the sun, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of surfing it. <laughs> so, but I mean, it's an all day affair, man. And, you know, and the loot that I make that day at the end of the month literally pays the mortgage and the taxes. Wow, you know, man. In that, in that one day, but it's a grueling day. It's a long day. It's a grueling day. But, um, pretty crazy impressive though like how how many like what's your roster like now like like how many would you say well right now monday and wednesday are pretty filled monday is getting pretty close to being the same schedule as wednesday it's it doesn't go as late it doesn't start actually it starts earlier um yeah monday's rivaling wednesday these days so um maybe i can buy another house Uh, (laughs) i mean it might not be a bad idea to find some place that's like remote that doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't end up near people. Uh, but I don't, then you got to worry about like delivery and shit like that. And of course that yeah. whole system is being taxed really hard right now. So. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, no, no doubt. But, uh, um, I don't know. It, Cause numbers fluctuate. Um, right on. but if I had a guess, you know, like the, the core guys that are there every week, if I had a guess, I'd say between those two days, there's got to be almost 20. Okay. And that's good. That's a good number. That's a good number. You know, it's like it, our lessons, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I will not do um, anything less than that. I mean, it's it's pointless to do anything less than that, you know, because all these guys, too, are, 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 are and I say guys because I, there's no there's no women at this point. Um, right. Uh, they're all doing stuff that requires – explanations and uh, and time to do things so a half hour is just pointless i haven't done a half hour lesson who knows how long yeah 
I, I find it tough to do that. I don't really offer them either. Um, Cause I don't ultimately think it's the easiest thing to do if you're getting into something where you have to explain it and then, you know, you just demonstrate something and then you think of two other things that would be helpful uh, just to round out what you're really trying to relay. Um, so I feel like an hour is like the perfect length. I try to off ramp by like 45 minutes though. Cause I'll, I can get long winded man with some of that sure. shit. Sure. Yeah. Um, that. But, um, yeah. So like when, when did you kind of realize that, uh, like Skype was kind of the future? Like when, like, was it right from that first time you taught, uh, that dude that Archie hooked you up with, or was it sort of like, did it take a while for you to kind of see it for what it was? Um, I, I guess when people started um, jumping on and just to see that, hey man, my market just went from who can come to me to, you know, who can hook up online. And at the time that was still a question, you know, like, okay, who's got the ability to do this? Like you said, we weren't buying laptops yet. We weren't in that culture yet where it's a given yeah. that every device that you're getting has a camera and you can jump online and, and also that the speeds are there and you know, the, whatever you're doing is stable. Yeah. So I guess once that started becoming a thing where that was becoming common, it was like, Holy shit, the marketplace just became whoever's got an internet connection and wherever they are. I mean, I, I think somewhere on my true fire page, let me see if I can pull it up real fast. Um, there is a little list up there on my private lessons page, um, you know, where like a, a collection of, let's see, yeah, here we go. I mean, it's probably close to updated, but I've had students through, through Skype on my own and with Truefire, you know, with interacting with them, not people buying courses and stuff, but just, you know, interaction with, with studying with me. Um, Australia, China, Germany, Bermuda, um, Norway, Iraq, England, Portugal, Mexico, Switzerland, Sweden, Brazil, Ireland, Canada, Japan. Oh, Iraq's in there twice. Um, uh, Italy, Saudi Arabia, Poland, the Netherlands. Uh, did I say India already? Because that might be in there twice. Turkey, South Korea, Taiwan, Bavaria, South Africa, Croatia, um, Scotland, Costa Rica, the Philippines, and Finland. You know, like... How else could that have, you know, I've, you know that, there's no other way that could have happened. And that's the market. You know, I was, my, my joke now is the only continent that I haven't had a student on is Antarctica. I'm sure that's coming. You know, I'm sure that's like. Yeah, I, it's not even a joke. I'm sure it is coming. You know, <laughs> I, I'm sure that somebody is going to be there. There's going to be a connection at some point. Somebody's going to, you know, uh, hey, have the time and the resources and the ability to get online and take it to our lessons. And uh, maybe I'll be that guy, and, and uh, right. you know, I will complete my seventh continent. You know, so <laughs> that's. I mean, you know, I'm sure that'll. I'm sure that's not so far off. No, um, no, no. One thing I always thought was interesting about you, because like you're such a diverse and like excellent player, was just like kind of what you chose. Like, I mean, I, I think you li always like playing, right? But touring was never really something that interests you or was it just sort of a practical thing that you moved into like the education side of it? Cause you liked it, but it also made the most sense given like, you know, how you wanted to live. 
bro, to be honest with you, it was it was the choice between being one type of father and the other. Okay. That was just that's just it, bare bones. Um uh let's see. When John was born, um that was 2002. So when John was born, I had just started to do the National Guitar Workshop thing. You know, Fizinski took me up that that first mm-hmm. that first time and I got the gig. And um <clears throat> I think um I think the year he was born was the first time I went away to go do it on my own. So I was up there for about two weeks. And when I came home, he was born in April. So I probably did that gig sometime in June, mm-hmm. June, July or something like that. When I came home, he was, uh, whatever, a couple months old. <clears throat> and um, he kind of didn't know me. You know, he was a baby. He was, he was, a, he was, he was you know, kind of still an infant a little bit. I forgot the names of those stages, you know, all that stuff. But, yeah. but um, you know, I, I, I didn't like that. I, you know, was, that was a little weird. You know, it, it didn't take long for for us to, 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 to get over that, but still, that, that hit me. And then when Will was born in 2004, a lot of stuff changed in between that time. So by that time, I already had the Berkeley gig. I mean, shit, you probably remember when Will was born. I had a Yep. I was yep. supposed to do guitar sessions that summer and I had to sub it out last second because Stacy went into labor. And uh, I remember Brian Baker had to cover my guitar sessions. Oh, right. <laughs> I think you might have been in the ensemble, right? Uh, yeah. No, I think it was Tony because I was still doing uh, Fuses ensemble. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, I, but I think I remember, I remember that time period pretty well. Um, yeah, yeah. You and Nikki did my uh, ensemble. I think either the year before or the year after, something like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But so during that time period, when Will was born, now I was in and out. So the schedule was kind of Monday and Tuesday. I was in Boston, sleeping on your couch, right, in, uh, at Dustin Street, and then um, <laughs> yeah. I would come home late Tuesday night, get up and do the lesson thing locally. Uh, Wednesday and um, uh, Thursday, and a lot of it was actually. You know what? Wednesday was on the road, so I was driving between the two towns, Tom's River and Brick, driving. So I would be out, gone. Thursday would come around, and I would be in my studio room in that house from morning till night. You know, doing private students that came to the house, and then a little bit Friday morning, then I would leave and teach at this music store all day Friday into the night, get up in the morning Saturday and do like a half day. So my only time off was um, Saturday, you know, midday and all day Sunday. And I had to fit in everything else like mow the lawn and, you know, do stuff and, you know, and try to be a father. And even during the week, in the meantime, I was still now, I was running in and out of New York doing the sideman thing. And I started doing fly dates on the weekend sometimes. So I would get done with that teaching schedule maybe on Friday or whatever, or have to adjust it. And then I would go to the West coast and do gigs with like, you know, um, whoever, I remember doing gigs with Halle and, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, doing wacky gigs with Swiss Chris and, (laughs) and that's actually how I met Kabe, um, you know, doing gigs with him. But anyway, so that schedule was killing me. And it was killing us, you know, it was killing, like, like, Will really was like, who is this guy? Uh-huh. Because I was hardly around. And that's when I was like, nope, this needs to change. That's how we ended up moving to Massachusetts. Because Stacy was even like, you can't keep doing this. You're running yourself into the ground. 
you know, the kids are definitely getting affected by it. And uh, I didn't like it. You know, it was definitely stressful for us. So she's like, I'm ready to go back to work too. She was, because um, the big reason why I had to do that kind of hustle was because I was the sole income. So I was doing a mortgage and supporting me, you know, supporting four people, myself, my wife, my two kids, you yeah. know, on just being a guitar player. And um, yeah, so we devised the plan to get me out of that, to get her back to work, to get me in the house a little bit more. And then as we started doing that, I liked it. And I kept shifting more and more towards not having to perform, like not making performance um, a nugget, you know, a, a dependable source of income. I tried to make it just to be something that was only gravy, you know, and so that the other stuff I was doing that, that I depended on kept me home. And it took a couple of years to, to, to really come full circle. And um, by the time I left Berkeley and moved back to New Jersey, about a year or two later, I really got it dialed in. So by the time 2010 or so, that was it. You know, and actually, ironically, at that point, I started traveling a little bit with Kirsch. But after I stopped doing the stuff with Kirsch, I never really, and that was even just fly dates. You know, we never went out for long periods of time. Yeah. But yeah, that was that. That's the story. <clears throat> was it hard to kind of get out of the rhythm of like the performance thing being what it was? I mean, did you, or did you, did it not really register like that? Because I mean, I think probably, probably you always knew you were going to still perform and do gigs and stuff, but just the idea of being, you know, at the mercy of the road to like provide a certain amount of income, you know, like kind of moving. No. No, the transition I think was that, uh, I mean, maybe I got lucky uh, or maybe at some point I really was killing myself, yeah. and, um, you know, <laughs> shutting off one thing was like, well, that's cool because you got so much other stuff going on that you're, you know, it's there it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause for a while it was, it was truly insane. I mean, it was, that 10 years I did the sideman thing in New York. I would, I absolutely loved it. And I, I, if I did it all over again, I would do that again. Um, yeah. It's just awesome. It was awesome playing with all those fantastically talented people. And um, I love the variety of it, you know, like the, the, the constant challenges of playing with this artist, and this artist, and, you know, and it was awesome. I, I really loved it. It couldn't keep going because it was, it could but I didn't want to do what, what was necessary to keep that going. You know, and there's guys who went off from that time period to go do things that are extraordinary, you know, and I, I you know, whatever. I, I went my direction and people went in their direction. And, and I'm not saying if I went in the same direction they did, I would automatically have that same amount of success. Who knows? Yeah. But um, I don't, it was a great time. 96 to 2006, right? Right before, up until I moved to Massachusetts. It was a kick-ass run, and I don't regret a moment of it. Um, and there was a lot of great stuff that came out of it. And it did shape the things that I'm doing now, um, just in the way that I, you know, wanted them to. So, uh, but no, I don't think it was a big deal. I, I And, I, you know, I still perform, um, yeah. but not nearly, well, like, you know, previous to the pandemic, not nearly as much as I used to. I, I, you know what? I, I was going through some old stuff in the attic, and I, and I found an old date book from the nineties. And, uh, and it went through, you know, it hit that period. So mm -hmm. I was just 
you know, just open up the book, man. It was like, it was like opening up a yearbook or opening up your diary and looking at like all the people, like some people I forgot about, like you can't remember all that stuff from back then, like all the people, like all those one-offs and this and that. But man, I was just looking at the the grind, you know, how much I was here and there, that, you know, and, and this guy and this person, and this band and this rehearsal and, you know, and this, and, you know, this day was three different things that happened in three different states. And, you know, I was a young guy and it was fun, but, you know, if I tried to do that now, oh, dude, I couldn't, I couldn't drink enough coffee to do that again. There's no way. There's no way. Yeah. You know? I don't know. I mean, like the, the weekly commute to Boston seemed like a tough thing to, to mitigate sometimes just because of the, um, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a way you can probably like wrangle 95 and like, you can, you can figure out like different routes to, to go, but like. Oh, that, well, I sure did. Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, I got a taste of it when I finally left Boston and um, moved to New York and I still had, I still was doing wedding gigs for a while because I was on contract to do them. And, uh, the GVs. Yeah. GVs. And it's weird. It's weird. I can't get away from that house, dude. You know, like, like even yesterday, like I did something, there's like a webinar talking about this podcast. What do you mean? Dustin street? Yeah. Dustin street. Like I just, you know, like for, for whatever reason, like, that's wow. the part of my time in Boston that like never will leave, you know, which is not bad, but I'm just saying like, like, you know, that was a very in- interesting period of time in my life. Like, you know, and, and all the people that like, I sort of know who live there, you know, there's so many good musicians that lived in that house um, that are, you know. Yeah, are, I, I totally get, I mean, I was in a house, a similar situation right after college. Um, it was a house in Sea Warren, New Jersey, which is a borough of Woodbridge. Um, if you're ever driving, um, you know, people who are around this area know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're driving over the outer, outer bridge crossing, you know, from New Jersey into Staten Island, mm-hmm. and you look left, do you see all those white um, uh, storage tankers for the crude oil that comes in? Yes. And um, Sea Warren is right there. So um, um, that I lived there for about a year and a half, 95 to 97. And it was the same thing. It was this house that uh, that that so many musicians live there or crash there. It was it was Dustin Street. It yep. was that's why I, that's why I got you guys. You know, and I knew how to deal with that. You know, I because I I had been a resident in one of those homes, and I totally got that thing um, because I lived it, and it was great. And uh, that's how it's you know that's really where the sideman thing started. Because I moved there in '95, and that's how I started playing in New York, and and um, and this and that. And uh, but that whole thing, you know, of, of living with musicians, you know, everybody who's trying to really make it, like really make a go at it, not just people who were, you know, waitresses, and or had day gigs and played music at night. These were all yeah. full-time musicians. These were everybody hustling, you know. And like most of the guys who lived in the band uh, house were in a band. They had a publishing deal. Um, you know, they, they went out on the road for, you know, different spurts of time would come back and, you know, and other people lived in the house and were doing different things, other artists, you know, it was great. It was really, really great. And, you know, I'm sure you can say the same thing. I mean, could you imagine living like that again now at this age? No, no. I mean, it would be like old school, that movie, it would be like that. Um, just, just as far as, I mean, I actually, right before I moved out, I was starting to feel like 
you know, I mean, I was like 28 when I left that house and I was starting to feel like it was kind of old, like just sure. we were too old to be doing, like we used to throw parties at that place or, or they used to throw parties and I would, if I wasn't playing or if I was around, I would hang at them. And like, sometimes it would be cool. Like we play downstairs in the basement. Um, there was one time Esperanza Spalding played at the, you know, and this was before the world knew about her, but you know, it was just sort of that kind of thing. But um, there was, cause I left, I moved to New York in the fall of 2004. And uh, it was like the summer that like the DNC was in Boston because Carrie was running mm -hmm. and uh, we had this party and like, you know, sometimes people would show up and I didn't know who they were. Um, a lot of times it was easy to figure out how people got to us because friends would bring friends and it, you know, it was never really a concern that unsavory people would, would find their way in there or like there'd be some home invasion shit. Cause sometimes the parties you, you you always run that risk. Um, sure. but for whatever reason, maybe it was because that house was in, you know, like the student enclave of the city. Cause it's not, it wasn't too far from Boston college or BU and then Berkeley and all those other places. Like it was just, it was pretty safe. So, but you know, there were some girls there that I didn't know. And I, I would always like talk to people just to see what was going on. And like, I was talking to these girls and, um, they're drinking and, and, uh, they were talking about how Dennis Kucinich had visited their school, right? And I was like, well, what college do you go to? And one of them looked at me, she said, college. And I was like, all right, give me your drinks. You get, you got to get out of here, you know? And so oh. it was like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, we had it, plenty of that, too. We had plenty of stuff like that that would happen. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was one of those things where I just felt like, all right, we're not... Nobody's, like, doing anything inherently terrible, but... It's, yeah, but the risk is not worth it. And you know what? And, and, and for the time period that you had that going on was was definitely approaching a more dangerous time period than when I was doing it. I was doing the mid '90s, where things weren't, you know, things weren't just as sensitive and, and weren't as highly scrutinized as they are today. You're kind of right in the middle of that. And also, back when I was doing that stuff, there were no cell phones, so nobody was documenting anything, you know, and. And I, I don't know, I, but same deal. You know, we used to have, we, those parties were to pay the rent sometimes because yeah. the house was huge. It was huge. And, uh, you know, the basement and the basement was more than enough room for us to, uh, to, uh, to stuff a couple hundred people in. But then we had so much more room. We had this massive ballroom that had these cathedral ceilings and stuff like that. It was just this old castle looking place. And, uh, to have 500 people come in and out of the house throughout the night was not uncommon. It's not something I would ever want to do again. Right. But, um, we do the same thing. The first, you know, the first time I met Ari Honig, because he played my basement. You know, he was, <laughs> he was a local New Brunswick musician, you know, Tom Brislin, who I went to college with. But, I mean, he played there. And, you know, I could probably rattle off all sorts of people that played in that basement back then, you know, from, from that time period. Um, because we were so close to New Brunswick. That was our closest um, urban um scene you know new york was pretty damn close too but new brunswick was like 20 minutes away and that was our that was our home base and uh but yeah there's no way that there's so many reasons i would never do something like that again i mean you know for the obvious but also just some of the things that only people like you and i who live that could describe you know that there's just sanitary things and uh, yeah 
it was disgusting. You know, it was a lot of times it was disgusting. I mean, you put eight dudes under a roof and you see what you get. Yeah, you know? no, I mean, that that place, there are some logistical things that were challenging. And sure. for some reason, my schedule never really in, inter, interfered with the, the logistics of, of like having one bathroom for like six people. But, but every now and then, like, I remember I would like take a shower and then I look out the window and some dude that one of my roommates would be like pissing up against the tree. Cause like, you know, I was yeah. in there like, yep. just, you know, like not, not the most refined period of time, but you know, I mean, by and large, by and large, like that house, I mean, I, I hope none of us got asbestos, man. Cause that thing was definitely not. Oh, I absolutely. Same here. I, I can't even imagine what materials were used to build the house that I was living in, in Seawarn. And Seawarn itself, the air quality. Actually, you know what? <laughs> uh, I was teaching a lesson. You know, oh, it, it, Harvey Valdez. Harvey, this was back when Harvey Valdez was one of my students. So Harvey lived uh, not far away, so he would come to the house. And uh, we're doing this lesson. And all of a sudden, dude, this house was big, and it was made of bricks. And it was like a, you know, a house. This was an old-school house. Like, so all of a sudden, the house shook. Like this monster old castle just shook and the boom that accompanied that shake was unbelievable. So me and him looked at each other. What the fuck? <laughs> so we, 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 we walk outside. Something must have happened. We look over the horizon. I will never forget this, man. All we saw was this monstrous flame, this bellowing fire and black smoke. So a bolt of lightning hit one of those white tanker things oh no and lit it up blew it up and it was i've never i've never heard anything like that i've never it was like a mini earthquake and then you know of course it was mini pandemonium because well that wasn't the only tanker in the area so you know there was fire trucks coming from who knows how far away and they were literally squirting the surrounding tankers for days because they couldn't put out the fire. There was no way they could put out the fire. They had to let that thing burn, hmm. um, you know, because it was literally a tank of fuel. So as that's burning, they're, they're watering down the other ones. But, man, the air quality for those days and the days that followed, weeks that followed, was terrible. Yeah. I don't know who owned it. I don't know if it was Exxon or one of the big guys, but they tried to make right with the people that lived there. They washed our cars for that entire summer. You know, because the soot that was falling was just leaving this black cloud all over the place. Who knows, man? I might be, you know, my deathbed or at the end when some doctor, you know, gives me some Star Trek scan and goes, man, were you ever like, were you ever in a war zone? You know, it might be from those days or those weeks that I breathe that shit in. And I, you know, maybe when I'm about to meet my maker um, that I'll have to explain that or, or come to terms with whatever I subjected myself with. Cause this was some Chernobyl shit, man. This wow. was insane. Yeah. Ask Harvey that shit. If you ever talk to him, um, <laughs> that's one of those unforgettable moments, you know, unreal. But again, you know, just one more piece of ill health from living in that sort of environment, but I would do it again in a second though. It was, it was fun. <laughs> it was a good yeah. time. I mean, Boston's a cleaner, I think Boston's a cleaner place in that one area. So <clears throat> there, there wasn't really, um, I think the biggest existential threat in that house, honestly, and like clockwork, 
um, I saw this happen twice. The two people, like when, when it would snow and people would park in the last spot in front of the house, if, if it was snowing and there was any ice at all, someone would inevitably hit that car, you know? And so I remember telling people all the time, don't park, don't be the first car in that, in the, in where you can start parking in front yeah. of the house. Cause if it's, if it's slick enough, someone's going to hit you and it's going to, it's going to be really bad. Yeah. I never, I remember that. I never, I never did that. I always parked somewhere that made sense. And <laughs> uh, my, my worst nightmare, not nightmare, my worst memory of Dustin street was the fact that I had to get up earlier than anybody out of courtesy for everybody. Cause I was just, you know, the guy on the couch to get a shower. Oh yeah. My only shot. I, I couldn't do it at night because 90% of the time I came to that house late at night after doing my Monday schedule, you know, people were still milling about the house and, you know, doing their thing or, or everybody was in the living room watching, um, uh, what was that HBO show that everybody watched? Um, Westwood. Westwood. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> what was it called? What's the, what's the Western one? Um, Deadwood. Deadwood. That's it. Yes. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Actually. It was really cool. That's a good but, show. Yeah, so I couldn't get a shower. I couldn't get on the bed. Oh, man, I was like, wow. I was just sitting in the kitchen and just melt in a chair because I was exhausted. I was, I, was, I was just so spent. And I'd just done the drive and a full day of work, and I had to get up the next day to do a full day of work and, and, then, and then a drive that started at like a 10 at night. That's why I used to drink Monster. Oh. That was my can of Monster. I would, I would do like one or two cans of Monster, Um. You know, it was the same spot. I would stop at the same place on the pike, the same rest stop, get my monster, <clears throat> and I would get one bag of small sourdough niblets, and I would nurse those things. I would kind of microdose myself on monster the entire way home. Oh wow! So I, wouldn't, I wouldn't slam it. I would just keep sending that caffeine and that that you know massive blast of whatever else in there, like guarnine and vitamin B and shit. And when I would get home, man, I would be so zonked. I couldn't go to bed for like two or three hours. Wow. Yeah. 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 Because that, I mean, I experienced that when I would go back there because, um, I had a pretty decent alumni situation there where I could just, I like, they let me keep my key so I could just show up whenever and nobody cared. You know, it was like, it was, and so I did that for a while, you know, like I would go back and forth and, um, <clears throat> but yeah, like if I wanted to crash at like 11, um, not not possible unless somebody was out of town like there have right. been times where like uh i don't know if you remember mike dalek he lived in the yeah he lived yeah, upstairs. Mike, yeah mike would be gone sometimes because i think he was dating somebody and she lived she lived kind of towards um like worcester so he would drive out to see her and like i remember one time i was like dude can i just crash like on your floor like i'm tired and he'd you know he'd be cool with it Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. That that whole time period <clears throat> was really interesting, and uh, I don't know. But I, I I definitely it's tough to say, man. I don't know what's worse, like drinking Monster or like breathing bad shit. That's that's like a toss up. I'm not I'm not totally well, at least sure. I didn't do it simultaneously. Those were yeah. two different periods, two distinctly different periods, separated by almost ten years. So hopefully, my body. Uh, um, expelled the toxins from the 90s breathing of the black burnt crude oil and prepped me properly uh, for whatever mites and weird shit I was breathing off of the couch at Dustin Street. Right. Oh, my God, dude. I mean, I 
I was smoking at that point, you know? Yes, you were. Yeah, you were. Yeah, I was, I, everybody was like smoking cigarettes, like a couple people in the house were smoking cigarettes, like not in the house, but outside. And um, like I quit at the end of 2003. And, you know, I, I, as far as I know, I don't have any problems from it. Like I got x-rays like uh-huh. probably 10 years ago and they're like, yeah, it doesn't look like you did anything, um, which is cool. Hopefully that's, um, that's not something that, that takes a turn for any kind of worse situation. But I remember it. Um, spent, I remember a bunch of times we would, I think I would see you the most at that time. I would run into you on the beach. Out yeah. in front of, uh, um, what's that main building that's right there? What, what uh, 150. Yeah. Yeah. 150. You know, and you'd have a, you'd, I'd be on my way from one building to another and you'd be out, you know, cigarette break or whatever. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Bunch of, and what's that, what was that place across the street that made the, the burritos? It was, I think it was a chain, but it was a small chain. It might have been might have been a Boston thing. I loved it. It was so I, good. I think it was called Boloco. Was that it? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I that think place so. was good. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the beach was probably you know, and this is a strange thing. And I was going to ask. I wanted to talk to you about the Berkeley thing, but um, the beach was probably the single most important part of my Berkeley experience. I, bet you, I couldn't even imagine the networking that the, that that afforded man like uh and 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 i i'm not saying this to endorse cigarettes but i'll say that cigarettes <laughs> are a far better networking tool than any social media sure they really sure. are um but yeah i mean that's in in the summer of two, uh, 1992 i did the five-week program there and um I'm pretty sure the beach is where I met Adam Deitch and mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that's where I met Eric Krasno and a bunch of people. And then when I, when I went to college, it was the same thing. I mean, I met so many people I met. All right. So Chris Swiss, Chris wasn't calling himself Swiss Chris at that point. He was calling he was, he was Chris Bluick. Yeah, Chris Bluick. His real name. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. He was, he would smoke out there. Um, I met this was dude. He, was he, was he, was he, did he have a, did he, did he, was he a self-proclaimed, you know, Swiss hip hop guy by then? No, not really. I mean, he, he really had the love for it though. He was very into that kind of music. There was one time he actually sent me, he, he like gave me a hundred bucks because he knew I was going back to visit my family in Maryland uh-huh. and he wanted me to buy like a bunch of go-go albums for him. Cause you can't get that shit everywhere. So he wanted to learn like, Belinda like Carlisle, the Go Go's. What's that? No, no, no. Like, like Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, like that. Oh. <laughs> like, like uh, Junkyard Band and yeah. stuff like that. Because a lot of that stuff. I mean, we're we're talking like 1994. So, uh-huh. you know, a lot of those things you couldn't get. I don't believe a lot of those bands had real adequate distribution. Like, I know Chuck Brown. So okay, I don't know if, I don't know if this was still there when you would come to Boston. But there was a really amazing Tower Records on the corner of Newbury yes, and Nassau. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that to me, I mean, even though like obviously there's a lot of great record stores and locations that Tower had for me, that was the one that like is nearest and dearest to my heart because um, also there was one time Sam Kenninger got busted shoplifting there, but that's a different story. Um, but but like that record store was pretty much like the Mecca for, for everything. And so I remember seeing Chuck Brown having like CDs and tapes there, but a lot of those DC go-go bands, like 
they just, it was very small scale, you know, and it was very regional and it was, you had, you'd have to buy the cassettes. Like you could get them like at local record stores, but I don't know how far the reach was. So Chris was like, go buy me whatever you can get for a hundred bucks. Yeah. I think I took like a small, like finder's fee to buy smokes and like a cup of coffee, but you know, I, I got them like $90 worth of shit. So, um, but yeah, no, he was always kind of into that kind of music. He was always he was always into like grooves and stuff like that. Um, you know, I what, like the networking thing. Man, when you said the beach, I figured that's where the value was. Um, I, you know, kids still ask. You know, they'll um, they some kids who put two and two together or whatever um, that I taught there. They'll ask, you know, what's it like and what should I be doing? Da, 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 da. The one piece of information I make sure I give to them, if anything, if nothing else, is when you go there. You have to make sure that you uh, take full advantage of the opportunity that you have, and that is the networking. Um, you know, of course, the information there is invaluable, and um, you know, there's so much you're going to benefit from. There's there's so much you're going to learn, but your most important thing is the connections that you make there. I tell them the same thing. I was like, you have no idea who you're sitting in a classroom with. Yeah. There's a good chance that you're sitting in one of your classes within four years you're a good chance you're sitting near one or more people who are going to change things. And you yep. have the opportunity to develop a relationship with them that will be completely unique and, and unrivaled. Meaning there's few bonds that you have with people that are as strong as going to school together, especially your college years, because you're able to do things that are unavailable to say high school kids or just not able to do when you leave college situations because you know you go off on into your life and you get busy and you know and the only other relationships you develop that are that tight are touring relationships you know yeah. when you live with somebody but the but those relationships you make in college man they are just basically unbreakable you will always have these commonalities and these inside stories and these these histories that will serve you forever and ever and ever so if you can do that with someone who becomes a John Mayer, um, you know, that's going to, to benefit you, you know, and, you know, and hopefully your relationship is real and you're not, you know, doing this just to be a, you know, a, a leeching prick. But I mean, right. like, if you have a real relationship with somebody, you know, you will always have that. That's what it is. It's, it, it, it's real. And, and, and that's, you can't, you can't buy that. You can't fake that. You can't, you can't create it out of nowhere. So that is the most valuable thing that you can get from, from going away to a music school, especially Berkeley. Cause you just, yeah. it's, it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee you're gonna, I mean, I'm just thinking back to the students that were there when I was there and who they became. Like right. Mickey, Hiromi, Esperanza, Nier. You know, that's just off the top of my head. You know, look what they became. And yeah. they were just kids. They were just kids coming to music school. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very, um, it's, it is definitely one of those things. I mean, I can definitely, I'm not going to out this person, but I definitely, there's definitely one person I went to school with, like he and I did not have a great relationship and he got kind of big, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like really successful. Um, but you know, it's like when you're 17 years old, you don't always operate the way you're supposed sure. to in the professional thing. And, Sometimes, I mean, it wasn't like there was like anything terrible, but it was more just like we weren't, we didn't hit it off. 
So, um, you know what, when I would connect to that advice these days is if you go to somewhere like Berkeley and you take your Xbox with you, you're already, you're already missing it. You're already making a huge mistake. You, you are already on the wrong path because you shouldn't spend three seconds on something like that. You should be playing with anybody and everybody that you can. You should be out there. You know, and if you're in your room, you should be shedding. And that's right. it. And, you know, because there's, there, I remember kids telling me stuff like that, you know, or you may be getting a conversation with them off on the side, you know, so what do you do on the weekends, you know, because the, they live there, you know, they're from too far away to go home, which is great. They should be staying there. You know, all, you know, blah, blah, blah. some kids would be like, you know, I did put in a big session with uh, whatever, you know, Grand Theft Auto. What? <laughs> What? Are you kidding me, man? Somebody, I don't know who it is, somebody shelling out, you know, at the time, tuition was like, I don't know, the average four-year nugget back then was about 100K to 120K. So It's still up there. I think it's, I think it might be worse. No, it's more. It's more now. I, okay. I bet you it's, I bet you it's more like 160, you know, by now. Jesus. But the point is, you know, the, the, the time, you binging uh, one weekend, you know, on whatever, games were hot back then I, I just i just don't have any time for that i i don't even know what to say to you that that's not going to come off to you know be something relative to what the fuck is wrong with you you know, like, <laughs> you, you know. what was what was your take on because i mean i mean we talked about this like privately but like as much as you'd be willing to share like what's your take when you were there like what was your read on on teaching there because like the one thing I always thought was interesting is like you you ba- you didn't bail but you you made an exit and uh, you know like I I know some people kind of look at that place from the outside thinking man this is like the ultimate isn't that isn't that like the ultimate gig for like a certain type of educator but um, I was I thought it was interesting what you had to say about it but like at least before that point what what was your read on that place like did you think I mean, what, what, I don't know, like, what, what did you think of it? Um, all right, well, my unique perspective on Berkeley was I was kind of uh, naive. I didn't go there, obviously. Yeah. Um, I knew, you know, Berkeley, it, it's, it's like, you know, the ubiquitous term of when you talk about the mighty music college, it's, it's, it's the mighty Berkeley. But I still didn't really understand what it was, and I never stepped foot in the place until I worked there. You know, until I, I had an opportunity to work there, which was created by Fusinski. You know, he had me sub, which I was very lucky that the school went along with that because unbeknownst to him, because he was kind of new back then, he didn't know he wasn't supposed to farm out outside the community. You're not, you're not supposed to do that. But luckily, he fought for the fact that he had made a commitment to me because the school was like, you can't do that. This guy can't come here. You know, who the hell is he? <laughs> but, you know, he was like, hey, look, I already made a commitment to him and he's already scheduled, you know, so... Luckily, they went along with it, and somehow I weaseled my way into getting a job. But from the time that um, uh, I first went there, I was in awe. You know, I mean, yeah, it's Berkeley, but you don't get it until you go there. And uh, I was completely impressed. I was just, it was unbelievable. I just, just everything about it, you know, just the resources that they, they, they have for students was, was, and even, man, we're talking about free Roger Brown, you know, because I started there when Lee Burke was still the president. And um, um, God, who was the, um, what's his name? The vibe player. Gary um, Burton. Yeah, Gary Burton was still there. Um, Gary Burton's signature and Lee Burke's on my first contract, which I like, think is so wild. 
But um, uh, I, I was very impressed. I thought it was amazing. I also thought I, I was honored to, to stand in a classroom, to be in a classroom with so many kids from so many different parts around the world. I loved it. Uh, the number back then was 47%. 47% was uh, the percentage of international students. And um, man, I just, that, I, that was never lost on me. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Because these were kids um, straight out of cultures. Like they were 100% those cultures. And you learn so much from interacting with them. Um, so many things about that. And I, I loved it. I loved that from day one till, you know, the last day. That was, that was something I loved. Um, uh, you know, and the resources that they give to, to faculty members is pretty incredible. You know, there's so much support there. Um, I have to say, I have to thank Berkeley. They got me into using Apple computers. They, they trained me on how to do a lot of things. Like they had training programs for faculty on how to use um, Finale, how to use Sibelius, um, how to do video editing. So I learned a lot as a faculty member. You know, I, I went to all those training sessions, but the irony of that was I wanted to use those skills. And um, you know, there's two reasons why I left. One reason is Boston. The other reason was um, I just hit a cap. You know, I hit a place where after five years, I was basically told to, you know, kind of set yourself on cruise and ride it out. Here you go. This is this is it. You know, because the first couple of years was like the growth period was crazy. You know, I got promoted within the first two years. I went from the instructor, you know, that four-tier title, instructor, um, assistant professor, associate professor, professor. So I came in as an instructor, and within two years, I got promoted to assistant professor, which was really great. And... Uh, Man, I was like, okay, cool. Can we do this with a so like you know me? I'm, 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 you know, give me the ball and I'm, I'm gonna run as fast as I can. And if there's a wall, I'm gonna go through it. So I, I, uh, I, I started to, I started to hit walls, you know. So I'm learning all these great skills, and I want to use them. I had already written a book, so I wanted to write more books. I wanted to. I was already writing my first book for course technology. I was writing that that book on um, Pro Tools. So, but I wanted to write Berkeley Press books because they were Berkeley Press books and they were also distributed by Hal Leonard. And I wanted to move to that level. I wanted to get, move up from like books like Alfred and stuff like that. And um, I was flat out told, no, you can't do that. You know, you cannot do that. You're, you're, you're a junior faculty member and you have to wait till that goes around. I was like, well, why can't it be based on merit? Why can't it be based on what I have? You know, so I, 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 I get it, but I didn't like it. So then Berkeley Online was just becoming a thing. And uh, man, I thought I was shooing for this. You know, I'm a young guy. I, I'm, I'm embracing the technology. I'm starting to teach on Skype. You know, I should be the guy or at least, you know, like, I should be somebody who's involved in this program, not the guy. But um, again, flat out told, no, we have to go down the ranks and see who's going to do it. And man, I know full well that half of the faculty members they were going to go to, like you're going to go up to a guy like, I, I love this man. He was a very nice man. Uh, his name was, um, oh God, what was his name? Mark French. I think his first name was Mark, but definitely French, Professor French. He was on his hundredth semester. It's including um, summer semesters and stuff, but this dude was on his hundredth and something semester. You know, he was close to retirement. 
you're going to tell me that I have to wait for you to offer him to teach Berkeley online for him to inevitably tell you no, because he's not going to do it, uh, you know, for many reasons. Like, why won't you just put me in there? Because so it was just that, that I just kept getting no and no and no. And I was I had a young family. I had hustle. I still had energy that I don't have anymore. But uh, I, I was hungry and I wanted to keep going and keep moving along. And I, I just started to see the handwriting on the wall. And I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe it's time to move on. And uh, that combination with not, uh, you know, I said before, Boston was the problem. It wasn't Boston. It was Massachusetts. I did not like living in Massachusetts. I did not like living in Western Mass. It was just a culture I just never embraced. So you know, I was like, well, look, if I don't like living here and I'm not getting fulfillment from this job, you now I'm five years into it. Now I'm coasting. I thought that like, wow, you know what? Five years went really quick. How fast is 25 years going to go by? I'm sure things would have changed, but they were not going to change at the rate that I thought that I was going to continue. So I made the decision to leave, you know, and uh, I set up a couple things, including True Fire, and I made my way out. And I was freaking out like anybody else would. And I'll never forget what Rick Peckham told me. Um, he um, he took me aside and he said, I, he said literally, he's like, he's like, I know you're probably freaking out. And I know this is probably weighing heavy on you, but let me tell you this. I wish more guys would do this. You know, you came here, you got something from the college. We got something from you. It was a good relationship. We benefited from it. And now you're moving on to do different things and we're moving on and we can take in somebody new who's going to bring something fresh to the college. And that's the way it should be. Because a lot of guys, there's guys on here that have been here maybe, you know, maybe for too long. And, um, you know, whatever. He's like, it would be better if there was more of a, of a, you know, a flow of people. And and that, that was really good to hear. That was, that was yeah. really, really good to hear and stuff. And, you know, it's yeah, it worked out. It was scary at first, but it did work out. Yeah. It is the yeah. ultimate job. Like you said, it was the ultimate job in that world for teaching. That's the, that's it, man. That's the grand slam. Yeah. I mean, I had a, you know, I had a stab at it. Um, when I was doing the summer programs and then, you know, I got pretty far into the application process. Like I made it to like the final six, but it's weird, man. I knew that I didn't want to do it. Like I kind of knew I wanted to. I remember, to I remember that period when you were, when you were uh, getting, you know, going through the process and stuff like that. And you came to the conclusion that like, you know, I don't think this is for me. Was, was, um, was Steve Bailey there yet? Or that was, um, uh, what's his name? Still was the uh... Rich. No, Steve was there. Steve's cool, man. Um, Steve had taken it over by then, but Rich Appleman, was that his name? Yeah, Rich Appleman. Yeah, it had been a couple what, years. Care? Yes, yeah, Rich Rich retired, and so Steve took over. I think mm -hmm. Steve took over in 2013 or 2014, something like that. Um, and uh, no, Steve's, Steve's cool, man. He's really done an awesome job bringing in. Yeah, it seems um, like he's done really good stuff with that. Yeah, like he's good. He's good at like bringing in different people, and like there's some great stuff going on. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't really like. I think bigger picture stuff. I didn't see a future in New York necessarily, and I felt like it was probably. I wasn't ready to be that guy yet. You know, like I don't mm -hmm. know why. I don't know why. Like sometimes I have a hard time with the idea of like locking something down. 
You know, like I, that's exactly what I was thinking too. In that, in that regard, professionally, I, I thought that that's what I want to do at the time. And then when I started to see what that, what that picture really is, it's like, you know what? No, if it means that I can't do all these things and this is not what I want to do. Yeah. And two years, the two years from the time, 2008 to 2010 with true fire, we put out 10 courses and I wrote about three books, three or four books in that time period. So obviously I had drive and I really wanted to do more. And there was, I was made, it was made very clear to me that that was not going to happen at Berkeley. So it happened elsewhere. You know, I started, yeah. I continued to write for, um, actually not the guitar one thing was over, but I started writing for guitar player. Like I was a content machine the first two years out of Berkeley. Yeah. The one thing I really kind of thought was interesting and, and I know it never really came to fruition, but, like you're had you had this idea for like a class about hustle. And I really think so honestly, if if someone was gonna ask me like what what's the worst thing about these schools, and I can't speak for all of them because I'm sure, you know, like there's there's definitely schools that like bring in, you know, Berkeley does this, they'll bring people in to talk, but I don't hear a lot of people talking about what happens when you leave, you know? And yeah, I agree. I agree. And, That's true. By and large um you know i've read i've read really scathing things from people that like are like esteemed alumni like not like they're trying to diss anybody who's there but like i remember reading this interview man and i'm not i remember this quote so i'm not like saying something fucked up but like abe laboreal jr said something like berkeley prepares people to play for holiday inns like and and i know what he's referring to i do too i totally get that i know what um, he's talking about <laughs> So, but like, you know, when I think about like some of the really successful people that have like um, come out of there and I'm not, I won't pull myself from that pile, but like, I'll say this, man, like I figured out that the smart move to, to do anything is to do your own shit. And like, like basically no one there said, Hey, you should make a record. I just decided to do it. Mm -hmm. And that set me up for like at least the first 10 years of my career. Like there's no way, like we wouldn't have met if that didn't happen because, you know, I, I hired Fuse to play on it. And that was just me being really ambitious and feeling like, okay, I, I think I wrote good enough material that he'd play on it. And I could get like a great band. I could make a great trio with him on guitar. So at least it would be cool. Um, but that whole thing was based around like, just creating something instead of this, like, let's prepare to be called by someone to use my services as a bass player. Like I, I kind of saw beyond that, but then also if you look at even other people who just sort of went their own way with stuff and didn't, you know, they didn't like, I don't know, they, they, they had to figure out a way to do something with that shit. Like it wasn't really just, okay, you play well now what it's like, I know people that have definitely like, they had to swim upstream a little bit and figure it out, you know, versus just kind of doing, you know, if you just follow what they give you, it's your, I think you're at a disadvantage. I think people really have to have an idea about where they're trying to go, or at least take a stab at something that's unconventional, but especially now. So I feel like, you know, I heard this a little bit, even when Steve was there, but there are people who are talking about like the way the business once was and I'm, and I hear them speak and it's like, that's not how shit works now. 
Like, it's just not, you know, I think there's an ivory tower thing that happens with education where if you're not, if you're not out in the field, you're not really aware of how, how it works, you know? So, well, I mean, that, that goes, just goes to show for, uh, I mean, how many programs, especially for me when I was going to music school, it was classical or jazz or nothing else. And yeah. that when you, when you left those programs, you, you're, just like you just said, your your uh, your your path was basically Holiday Inns. With that, what are you going to do with that? You know, if you're if you got if you're got your straight ahead jazz chops together or your classical performance um, uh, uh, chops together, you know, you're 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 going to be the baddest cocktail guy there is. But I mean, yeah. there was no talk about. I mean, I'm thinking back what I did after college. Um, as a sideman, as a working musician, and even as a leader, I learned none of that part in college. None, none of it. I learned it on the, in the fields. I learned it the hard way, getting yelled at, getting fired, doing gigs, you know, or whatever. Uh, and, and there's a there's a there's there's value to that. It makes it mean something more. But man, there was not a clue of that passed along in school, and I didn't see much of that at Berkeley in my time, 03 to 08. I didn't see a large amount of that. I mean, me and Stacy were just talking about this and we, we have these conversations with the boys just recently we're talking about because Will took a, a personal finance class this past year in mm -hmm. high school. You know, during that entire time, I don't know if it was a half year course or a full year course, but at the high school level, um, you, you know, this kid is 16 or 15 years old and uh, they didn't really teach him how to balance a checkbook. They went over all sorts of shit about mortgages and and um, and different things about personal loans and all sorts of stuff that me as an adult were would look at him and go, I don't know when you're ever gonna use that. You know, but but I found it amazing that they never taught him about the most fundamental thing about um, about personal finance, just paying your bills. And, yeah. and keep tabs on the money that you got coming in with the money you got going out. That's all. You know, I, shit, even in a music program or any sort of program, how do you not teach kids that even at the college level? You should teach them at the high school level, but definitely at the college level. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, there should be classes in music schools that, like you just said, I remember that. I forgot about that. I wanted to do that. And I did do sort of a kind of class like that at the local college here, but um, there should be a whole program. Every semester, you should have some class dedicated to what it is you're going to do when you get out, especially now. Like you just said, you're probably talking to a lot of faculty members now. I, I bet you I bet you the disconnect is even worse. Could you imagine talking to, you know, I don't know, maybe that guy back then, Mark French. Like, let's say Mark was still teaching there today. And could you imagine trying to talk to him about an Instagram account? Not right. having one. But, but what it does and what you need to do to make it work for you, you know, and what it can do and all the ins and outs of that. You think that he was going to convey that to his students in some way? Do you think he can advise students with that? No, no way. Uh, you know, so stuff like that. I mean, shit, man, even now compared today, compared to even when I was there, it's so different, so different. I couldn't even, I don't even know if I could explain to someone how to get an artist product deal with a company now. I don't even know if my methods even apply to a young person now. I mean, I have my own methods. They still kind of work for me, but I yeah. don't think they would work for a young musician now. 
I, I don't think it applies at all, you know, because I'm using stuff that I have under my belt, you know, feathers in my hat to my advantage. But if you're just, if I were the same person back then first starting that stuff, thinking back how I did it back then, it completely doesn't apply today. There's no way, I, it, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have any success with that. Nothing. So yeah, it's very, it's very different how uh, some of those companies work. Um, but there's a there's an identifiable path uh, if if you really kind of look at it. I mean, I think I think a lot of it comes down to understanding the way like having visibility on those platforms goes. You know, um, and and I think that's the thing. Like, so for people that are not in that world because they didn't have to be. Um, mm -hmm it's going to be lost on them and they wouldn't know how to relay that. There's, there's definitely like, I, I will say there are definitely people who are in that sphere that are, are operating at a really high level um, on Instagram. And they're not people who are like 25 years old. Like they're sure. Absolutely. They're but older than us. Model I just said before yeah. about the, the faculty members that are in a college, such as birthday, not just birthday, but think about the people who have been there for a long time. That's the same person that's been there since the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s or whatever. Yeah. And if they're still there, all this stuff is changing. And I think it's safe to say that if someone got a faculty job in the 80s or 90s and is still there and is not really, you know, at some point kind of just systematically removed themselves from being out there and they just really became that college professor. And they could be fantastic resources like a Mick Goodrick. You know, you can have this this world of knowledge that is just a treasure. But when it comes to the other parts of it, there's no way that they're going to pass along information relevant in that regard to a young musician going out who needs that, who needs to be hip to that shit. Now, obviously, probably, they're getting that stuff anyway. But they're not getting it from, they're not getting it from a place where they're paying a buttload of tuition. There's a, oh, there's, yeah. a, there's a bit of a financial or however you want to parse it or however you want to say it. There is definitely a disconnect between um, what you're getting in some respects, not all, but in yeah. some respects, what you're paying and what you're getting, there is definitely a disconnect compared to what you need when you leave a music school. And it's, and it's kind of a built-in thing that is going to fail. You got that long-term multi-decade faculty member, there is just no way that they're going to have relative, relative or relevant life experience in some of these very key parts of what a young musician needs to have. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I have one story that almost personifies the changing of the guard, but it was like, um, let's call it a dinosaur looking up at the sky and seeing an asteroid moment, but this guy didn't see it. Um, so my, my last year there, or, you know, I, when I, when I finished my studies, I was taking, I had like, I think I had a credit to play with so I could take another class and I took a music business class and, um, I'm not going to say what the name of the instructor was. I don't know if he's there. Um, but this was the fall of 2000 and in the fall of 2000, Napster had pretty much made its case for itself. You know what I mean? Like everyone was using it. Uh, even I used it, you know, like I wasn't trying to get records 
that I wouldn't, you know, like I still was buying records, but I would use it to, I remember there was definitely a couple records. Shit. You know what? I heard kid a for the first time before it came out or like right mm -hmm. as it came out because someone yeah. on Napster. And so this guy was, this is when people were talking about it much like people still kind of talk about streaming and debate its impact, even though it's already had its impact. So like we're actually there, but um, this guy actually said in front of a room full of people that Napster is a fad and it's not going to change anything and the business is going to go back to how it was. And that's the only class I ever walked out of and dropped immediately. Mm -hmm. Cause it was just like this, there's no way that this guy, and it, and it was almost kind of sad. I was sad for him. Cause it's like, you know, that's, that's just how amazing and crazy a change can be, you know, like in, in that realm, like automatically it's not that this guy didn't know the parts of the business he knew, but this addendum to all that really fucked things up. And, and the fact that he couldn't see that, I don't know if it's just, you know, it was denial or pride, but it was really weird to see someone say that when it's like, yeah, I just heard one of the biggest albums of this year for nothing and no one was able to stop it going there. Right. So it was, it was definitely like a weird, it was definitely a weird um, experience to see that. Cause they're usually, usually like schools are slow to adapt new ideas, you know, like think of how long it took them to address like turntablism you know, or, or like even controllerism, you know, you can major, you can yeah. major in controllerism. Like that can be your principal instrument now. Man, isn't that wild that you just, what you just said. And the, and the funniest part is that term is just this, it's just this word that Matt Moldover blurted out one day, you know, <laughs> okay. which by the way, I have a funny little story about that. So there is, um, uh, there's this uh, YouTube channel called Ben and Gear. It's uh, run by this guy, Ben Jordan, two ends. Uh, his, you know, electronic um, producer, superhero name is um, uh, Flashbulb, I guess. Uh, it is. I like what he does. I, I think his stuff is very cool. And, and the stuff that he does in his own name on YouTube is very, very good. I'm, I'm definitely, definitely a fan of his, um, his video work and his music. It's, it's good. So anyway, this, he puts out this video, you know, I, um, on um, guitar synthesis, and the, the focus was um, the SY-1000 boss unit. And uh, he, he usually does an open, uh, opening monologue. Ben's definitely an intelligent guy, well-spoken. You know, he's, he's, he, uh, he's good. He's good at what he does. So in his opening monologue, I guess the theme of the video was he was setting up the, the, the argument about, I'm about to, to give you my take on this piece of gear from the perspective of being an expert and um you know and, and I, I i don't argue with the fact that he could he could definitely take that stance but in his opening monologue he was kind of i don't know playing with that concept and almost kind of wrestling with it so very quickly in there he cites some examples and really he cites two examples and one of them was this tongue-in-cheek reference to you know well, then there's there's a guy who calls himself the godfather of controllerism, and then boop, there goes Matt's picture right on his screen, and he kind of, you know, it was a dig. It was a dig, and, uh, you know, well, sucks for him that I was watching it, and I happened to, you know, see it and just immediately go, 
uh-uh, no, you're not doing that. So, because the way he said it was a little disrespectful, I thought. I thought it, I thought it came off a little disrespectfully. So, um, I, uh, I first, I immediately sent the link to Matt. It's like, you need to see this. And also, I immediately put a comment on his, um, his, uh, his thing, his uh, video. And, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't care. I'm not an internet flaming person. I don't want to go back and forth to, you know, all the, I got the snarkiest comments, blah, 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 all that shit. But all I basically said was, hey, man, you know, that title that you're referring to, because he was inferring that, he, that Matt was like kind of, um, you, know, uh, you know, maybe being a little gratuitous, maybe a delusion of grandeur, whatever the case may be. I was like, look, man, first of all, he didn't, he, he's not the one that called himself that. He's the one that coined the term. It's something that someone else called him. And frankly, he earned it. He is the godfather of controllerism because he coined the term and he has continued to build a life doing that stuff. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, just let's, let's chill out a little bit. You know, I think I said, let's keep the commentary legit. So he got right back to me, you know, and he was like, I know, Matt, you know, we've toured together. And I'm, I'm even thinking, I'm like, wow, you're a bigger asshole than I thought. Wow. <laughs> Shit, man, are you kidding me? So like, you guys are down and you, 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 you still did that too? Cause, cause from my perspective, what, the way you did it, you kind of like had a chip on your shoulder about him or like, you don't like this guy or you definitely don't have respect. And he was like, yeah, no, we toured together. And I was like, holy shit, man, what a douche. So Matt, uh, you should go go look on Matt's Instagram and uh, his Facebook and stuff. He, I thought that he handled the situation pretty, pretty well. He put out a nice, funny post. And at the end of it, it was a nice dig. You know, it was, it was totally not confrontational, not catty. But he rightfully owned it. You know, he said, he's like, look, man. He cited who said it, who who gave him the title, and he even said he goes maybe it was a little conceited to uh, to go along with that. But frankly, it was it was a lot of work to create that world, you know, that we've all continued to enjoy. Yeah. So like, you know, and at the end, I think he said something. Maybe you could be the godfather of YouTube snobbery. But he said like <laughs> good luck getting people, you know, good luck getting people to uh, adopt that uh, name and call you that or something like that. It was really good. It was really well done. Yeah. yeah, there you go. But I mean, that's that's even more so. I wish I knew that because I would have cited that example. You know, Matt's term has gone so far that Berkeley College of Music has named a major after the term that he coined. Yeah. Which, funny enough, I think Matt tried to get a job there and he couldn't. They, yeah. Also, notable notable reference to Moldover. He used to crash at 18 Dustin Street every now and, he, and then. He, that's right. He's a Dustin Street alum as well. That's how I met him. I think I met him through um, Jordan Scanella. And, and there's another there's another one of my favorite alumni. You know, another guy who went out to do some some stuff. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. That, that's uh, that's amazing. Between those two households, Dustin and the, the one I lived in and stuff, just to think the people that live there went through there and the things that some of them have done is like wow, you know, the humble beginnings and you know where we all everybody's got to start somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, that, that house, that house is definitely, that's what I mean. Like I can't, it doesn't haunt my dreams. Like New York kind of haunts my dreams. Cause like, I, you know, like, yeah, just cause you know, living there for 13 years and going through some of the stuff I went through while I was there, like just, you know, it was like, an, it was an intense period of time. You know, I don't really think, I don't really think like you can get rid of it. You know, I think it's just part of Part of the thing. 
my living in New York for me was a brief thing. And it, it was, yeah, it was, it was, um, stuff I don't forget. That's for sure. It, it wasn't definitely, it wasn't my brightest, um, uh, moments and stuff. A lot of good came out of it, but, um, yeah, I just, I guess I definitely look on other places, uh, other times more fondly than living in New York. Being in New York is one thing. Living in New York is a totally different thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, my living in New York was uh, was weird. I can't really imagine what it's going to be like, you know, uh, going forward. You know, it's like kind oh, of. I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, no, I have no. I don't even know what it's like. I don't even know when I'm going to go again. I don't know when I'm going to step foot in there again. I, I don't. I mean, you know, things are things are cool now. Yeah. But I, I just when people like you know I, I was just listening to radio today and some guy was making comments about how oh you know as things get back to normal it's like what are you talking about yeah it, it, there's no there's no difference you know, we're in no different circumstance than we were a month two months three weeks whatever there is still this thing that we have no defense against I mean we've learned things about it but that seems to change daily yep. but the bottom line is that element is still out there and until there's a vaccination or a treatment or both we're still in the same boat so i don't understand why people think that there's this 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 path back i mean just look at the states that are spiking you know I, I'm, I'm waiting for new jersey to hit to 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 start saying holy shit you know we're 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 having a resurgence because i can tell you man i'm dropping i dropped off will today at the beach seaside was packed packed Jesus. streets are packed with cars the beaches are he said you know what he said this scares the shit out of me all the years that he's been going to the beach, you know, dropping him off, going to the beach with his friends, he said, "I this is the most people I've ever seen on the beach. This summer is the most people I've ever seen on the beach." Wow. Yeah. So, and you think people are wearing masks on the beach? Not a fucking chance. Yeah, I mean, there's there's things about that that I've heard. Um, like if you're socially distanced and you're outside and it's like the beach, <clears throat> the transmission is probably not that likely you know or it, there's something about being outside that can help with it but but I, it makes sense to me logically it makes sense it's just the point yeah yeah no i mean I, like i'll put it like this man the analogy i keep hearing about all this shit is basically it's jaws you know it's like the movie jaws when the dude wants to reopen the beaches that's the metaphor for like <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. you, you never the, the, the jaws was still in the water you yeah. know what I mean? Obviously, yeah, exactly. So, you know, whatever, man. Everybody's doing. I, I know for us, we're doing the best we can. I wash food as we bring it in. Um, yeah. Once a week, we wash everything. Probably should have been doing that in the first place, but you know, yeah. uh, but maybe not as as aggressively as I do right now. Um, you know, we we limit the people that are coming in and out of the house. We keep people, you know, outside in the porch in the backyard and stuff like that. If we have people over on the weekends, family. We let them come through the garage to go to the bathroom that's connected to it. You know, and that's it. We don't let people, you know, run around the house. Definitely don't let them go upstairs in bedrooms, downstairs in my studio area. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just precautions here and there. You know, we we put out hand sanitizer and masks for people. And, it's, and it was not like we have people coming in and out all the time either. But right. You know, we, we try to do everything we can and, and deal with this. We definitely, definitely do not do as much. You know, obviously we're not going on the vacations. We don't go out to eat anywhere. Um, uh, just everything is uh, just limited. Everything is limited. You know, uh, 
and you know what? I'll be honest with you. There's some good things to that. I, I think we there's definitely some things I've learned about things um, by slowing things down. You're able to see stuff more clearly. For instance, um, you know, we're mostly, especially in the beginning when the lockdown, like it was locked down hard. Mm-hmm. We were all home all the time. So I got to really get a clear picture of what it costs for four adults to eat. Cause there was no going out. There was no ordering out. You know, there was no school lunches. There was nothing. There was four adults that were eating 100% of their meals at home. And I got to see what that really takes to do that. And also how much cheaper that is than eating out. I mean, yeah, yeah it was expensive. The food, the food, the shopping bills were more expensive, but relatively looking at the big picture, which it took me a second to fully understand this because it was scary. Um, it was like, wow, holy shit. Those couple hundred dollars a month on restaurants is not on the credit card bill this month. You know, it was, it, it was silly how much we were spending on and still doing pretty big food bills. Cause you know, I got two teenage boys. Right. So, you know, in some respects it was, it was, uh, it's been, um, uh, you know, it's been a good, it's been a learning experience and there's some things I will definitely take from this and, and continue to do, you know, you know, definitely, uh, use that information. And, and I don't think some things I'm going to, I don't, I don't see myself going back on some things. Oh yeah. I think the handshakes are dead. <laughs> the handshake is dead. Um, yeah, the handshake, the the the, the bro hug, you yeah. know. I, I, uh, um, yeah, you know what? A lot of that shit was always kind of awkward sometimes too. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. I mean, come on. I was born in 1972, and I, I you know, I remember the 70s, and I absolutely, you know, obviously my childhood was the 80s. Men did not hug each other. No. You know, they just didn't do that. You shake a man's hand, and you you know, you learn to shake a man's hand firmly, and you looked each other in the eye. And, and hey, man, I'm cool with shaking a woman's hand. I have no problem with that, even though as a kid, that was unheard of. Right. You know, you just didn't do that shit. Yeah. But I think that's dumb. Yeah. But that, that's fine. Um, but the bro hug thing, when that started coming into play, I was like, wow, this is weird. What's the point of this? Why? You know? Yeah. Like, why do this? <clears throat> I mean, it didn't, I don't know that it bothered me one way or the other, but I just think, yeah, as a practice, all that stuff is going to fall by the wayside. I'll still fist bump people. Like I, I go on walks around my place. Um, Cause generally there's like two things I've been doing when I get sick of being inside. Like I'll go to the beach, but usually I'll go at night or I'll go at a time when nobody's there mm-hmm. uh, or mostly nobody's there. I'll go, um, I'll hike if it seems like there's not a lot of people around. And usually that means like early in the morning or like right as it's going to like the sun's going to set, but sometimes I'll just walk around where I am. And one of my neighbors is Javier Reyes from animals as leaders. And I've mm-hmm. known him for, I've known him since the night. You guys know each other from Maryland, right? Yep. So yeah. his apartment is right on, like he's in the, like a ground floor apartment and I can, you know, I can always see what he's doing. Like if I walk by, that sounds creepy as shit, but like, that's what I mean. Like I can just walk by and see if he's in there. And so, like, you know, there's been a couple times during this whole period, because, like, he's got his, like, setup out there, so he'll be working on tracks and shit. Um, mm-hmm. I think he said he was working on something for Bill and Ted 3, but I'm not sure. Oh, what that is. really? Yeah, no. I'm not sure what exactly so that is. he's going to be the uh, the token guitar licks throughout the uh, movie? I think 
there's going to be a bunch, but he didn't tell me all the details. And I don't That's know. Great. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like he came outside to the balcony and like, you know, fist bump and then just shot the shit for a little bit. And, you know, he was saying, you know, basically that's, that's, you know, there's been some interaction. Like I actually went and hung with Matt Rubano, uh, like socially distanced. We had tacos, like socially distanced. And he's out there. He, yeah, he's, he moved out here. Um, oh, I haven't talked to Matt in a minute, but I know he moved West. Yeah. He's, he's in Echo Park. And, um, you know, yeah, no, everyone's kind of, you know, this is, it's a very bizarre time period, man. Like everybody's, as you can imagine, we're a few months into it um, at this point. That's the other reason why, like, I've been waiting to get people on. Cause like when I realized I did 20 of these in the first two weeks and it, the conversations are very much, you know, they're different cause it's different people, but it's very, we're at the same phase. Like I just felt like maybe it'd make more sense to like space them out. So mm -hmm. So like, you know, I just have been going down the list and, and that's been it. But like the initial two weeks of that shit, like, like, you know, nobody's talking about hand sanitizer being hard to find or toilet paper being hard to find anymore. Um, unless people freak out again because of like the numbers that have been coming out, but like, uh, the new thing here is napkins. Oh, we really? Napkin. No, we cannot get napkins. Wow. I think it's just that, you know, it's getting a little nicer out and people are doing shit outdoors and finding that yeah. as a, a semi-safe way to get together with family. So probably the uh, the barbecue culture has kicked in more than ever. And I don't know, man, maybe I just guess people want napkins more than usual. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm scared of this thing, man. Like I'm not, I'm not like paranoid, but I got tested once just and I'm going to get tested again just to do it. Like I'm probably going to do it once a month because I feel like I'm pretty vigilant, but I, I just want to make sure, you know, I mean, I'm not really that paranoid about getting it. Cause like my interactions are very, very safe in terms of what's described as like safe. You know, like I, I'm always masked up and like, you know, the coffee place I like going to, if I don't make it at home, like they have a, thing where they have like a window you just pick it up at and it's real easy you don't have to go that far inside and they limit the number of people like it's only one person in there at a time and then the staff and it's like super you know mm -hmm. super safe and then um you know i'll go to the grocery store like trader joe's and they have people that limit the number of people that can go in so i feel yeah. like as long as they're going to do that i'm okay with it like I, I i don't feel i don't feel like it's it's inherently that unsafe but but like there's other things that you know like I, I would have gone to protests um if i wasn't scared to death that people weren't going to social distance and so um, my sister went to one um uh like a week ago or whatever two weeks ago and um she's she's 69 she's going to be 70 soon and uh she got super sick wow you know, the first yeah first thing we think about um, she, she tested negative, thank God, but I mean, man, she's 69 years old and, uh, um, you know, that's uh, not a good age range to, uh, to, to be getting infected. And also, uh, you know, she takes care of her granddaughters, my nieces, my, uh, my great nieces, and they had just come over. They were over here and we had some family over, including my mother, who's 92. Wow. So I mean, you, you could just, you start, you start, um, you hear about a possibility from one person and you, you just start doing the domino effect, the possible domino effect of, 
you know, the, you start doing the contact tracing in your head and it's like, holy shit, you know, if she tests positive, we have a lot of phone calls to make because everybody has to be, you know, told that from this connection to this connection, you know, you better, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a weird time. It's a, it's, it's a weird time, you know, and, and uh, well, I, I respectfully uh, have my concerns about it. You know, like, uh, yeah, I'm not, sure. I, I'm, I'm definitely, I could say I'm afraid. I'm not paranoid, but I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm aware. So if you want to, whatever you want to call it, I do what I'm supposed to do. I do everything I can to protect myself and my family uh, yeah. from, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, scaling back in any way from what I've been doing in the past. I think people are nuts. You know, when I talk to some people that have the attitude of this has been overblown, you know, the pandemic, um, or this doesn't exist at all. I don't know. I don't have any, I, I just don't have any conversation. I, I have nothing to say. And mostly because um, Stacy works for a, a healthcare organization, the largest one in the state. She gets a daily update. So look, man, it is far from something that, to the point where we have every right to look at someone and go, how dare you say that this is fake? Are you out of your, you, you have no, it's not, trust me. Cause we, we, we read about stories and she has to actually, she has to actually interact with um, people. Like her job is to tell the patient stories and, uh, and also tell stories from the perspective of staff. And she hears stories about staff who have held dozens of people's hands as they die because no one can visit them. They're not going to live. You know, their time has come. And this is the only person that they can sit with in a in a space suit. You know, right. that's horrible. And that shit is as real as real is. And it's not, it's not, it's nothing, it's nothing. We're not talking about inflated numbers. It's just this is the raw thing, man. This is this is what happens. This yeah. is how it goes. And it's it's happening. So maybe not at the rate it was before, but it's still happening. Yeah. You know, so yeah. No, it's it's uh it's insane. I'm not gonna out who this is, but there's a guy right now on Facebook posting like photos of him being out with people and kind of thumbing his nose at at like the media and stuff. And I see know, that stuff. shit too. I see that shit too. Yeah. yeah. And this is someone who's sort of in the circle of people that that we know, man, and and it's like really fucked up. And it is, it is. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's I think the biggest thing that sucks about all this is is uh, politicizing science is a very dangerous game because what happens is the people who are going to like be affected the most by it are the people that really need to like listen to the precautions and. Uh, you know, then they can unwittingly infect somebody else. And um, so it's weird, man. I don't know. Like, I've I've been sort of having this weird, you know, feeling that we're not even in, we're not even like a quarter of the way through this shit. Like, I don't think any of these time period, pro these like time projections of like when. I don't listen to any of that stuff. I, it, it means nothing to me. When this first started becoming a reality, I told my kids, Buckle up because this is going to be like this until at least next summer. This is what this is what life is going to be like for yeah. the next year. No doubt about it. You know, if you look at if you listen to science, um, the earliest that they're going to get and this, and that and this is fast tracking for real, fast tracking, not you know complete fallacies and and you know silly talk. 
for real fast tracking a, a, a vaccine that's not going to kill people or or just you know just blow up in our face is 18 months yeah so that puts us around next summer and then next summer then you got to then you got to consider distribution it's going to take a while to stick a, a needle into a bunch of billion people yeah you know, so it is going to be that i mean so yeah man next it's this is it we're, we're here for a bit yeah so it's you know it's an interesting time and i think you know uh the one thing that's interesting is like on one hand a lot of what you do have you seen any kind of uptick in people taking lessons or is it just because of it's sort of insulated from having to uh, it's a little back and forth it's a little bit of a back and forth um there has been people that have dropped off because they've lost their job and right. there's people that have jumped on because they have you know that they're home more and they're they're just trying to fill in the gap of of uh doing something you know then they, they, they've that's it. It's just, so it's, it's kind of a back and forth. I, I wouldn't say it's, it's equal so far, but like I say to Stacy all the time, um, you know, I have to mentally be aware, be, be prepared for the scenario that if uh, people keep losing their jobs, um, which, you know, you can't have an economy run the way it is for, for, for the long haul and not have this happen. The more people lose a job, the more disposable income starts to become not something that's freely spent. And my existence is solely based on disposable income. I do nothing that is essential. I provide nothing to the economy that's essential. So, you know, if people people don't have money, then I'll start, you know, that, that pendulum will start shifting towards the negative uh, reality. I hope not. And I'm doing the best thing I can for, uh, you know, and so is True Fire. I got to give them that. As usual, they 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 really stepped up, just like they did after Superstorm Sandy. But this time, it's their entire community. Yeah. Then it was just me and a couple guys. But this time, it's their entire artist roster, is is in dire straits, and they are coming up with so many different ways to start generating a new way of generating revenue. So we're all we're all trying to take advantage of those opportunities as best we can. And I'm trying to take advantage of any opportunities, but there's definitely some things that have changed. For instance, previous to this, I had two years worth of scheduling with uh, guitar player magazine. You know, I had two years worth of articles scheduled, um, you know, probably about six submissions a year until 2022. Right now, you know, obviously that ain't happening. Um, because for different reasons, there's different amounts of content um, being used. So right now, the only assignment I have is one. <laughs> I just handed in one, and my next one is not, you know, uh, shit, I forgot. I got to look it up, but uh, it won't be for a couple months. The due date on it is a couple months, whereas I was going to be on an every other month schedule for two years. Now it's now it, now I only have one assignment. Instead of having like 12, I have one assignment. Wow. And we're just going to take it as we go. So, you know, that was... a Little things here and there are, are definitely changing. And like I said, it's mostly equal right now, but it's more towards the, the scary part. You know, it, it, uh, I'm mentally preparing myself for what I think is going to happen. I think I'm going to go into the scary part at some point. And, uh, you know, and also financially preparing myself. So, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, that makes sense. I think we all got to be smart about this thing and 
yeah. try to like figure out like what the yeah. best way to like hang in there is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I'm out here for now. I don't really know. I mean, I feel like right now I'm probably staying out here is like the smartest thing for me to do, but there's no need to be in Los Angeles right now. That's just where I live. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I get that. So it's, cause I don't even know when I'm going to be able to come East again. Like my brother just became a dad and you know, I've been, you know, the baby's like two months old and I've been FaceTiming with them, but I don't think I'm coming East for a long time. Well, right. If you did something like that, you would, you know, the responsible thing to do before you saw them or your mother, yeah. you'd have to quarantine yourself somewhere for two weeks. Yeah. And then maybe get tested. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so no. I think just because of circumstance, I'm going to stick, I'm going to stay out here and, make it work, you know, and just hustle my ass off with the stuff I can do. And then, you know, um, I'm not above learning a different skill while I'm out, while I'm kind of out of like the playing thing, you know, like I've thought about doing this. People are going to have a choice, Uh, you know, at some point. I mean, I know a lot of guys who, you know, I I hate to see, I, I hate to see it, but have had to go do different things, whether it's Amazon warehouses or, or landscaping and stuff like that. You know, like guys who are bad, you know, bad motherfuckers, man, really great players, like guys who are world renowned, you know, in some respects, and they've had to uh, figure it out, man. You gotta do what you gotta do at the end of the day. And I will do the same thing if that's what it calls for. If uh, if my, my disposable income-based existence starts to not be able to sustain itself and not be able to provide what it need, hey man, I, I, I got no problem. I actually don't mind. I love being outside. I love working outside. You know, right. I just, I just, the only thing I'm worried about, man, is just my body. It's, you know, I'm not a 28 year old man. I'm a 48 year old man. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, shit, when I go out and put a couple hours into the backyard now, I'm toast. I'm the end of the day. The rest of the day is done. The next day, I, it's like, it's like I had an MMA fight. Oh, shit. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to make, you know, we'll, everyone's just gonna have to like take care of each other and all this, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But man, thanks for doing this. I appreciate you uh, talking, you know, and. Well, yeah. I, hey man, I hope people get, uh, get something out of what we usually do anyway. And here's our talk from yesterday morning about the great Edward Van Halen. Your text was like the first one. And then I got a barrage of texts, so I like pulled over. You know, it was like kind of a crazy, kind of a crazy uh, morning, like a week ago. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope, however, I delivered that to you, it wasn't as uh, as shocking as sometimes you know people send a message like that where they either think you know already, uh, or I don't know, it just come, it's just like sort of insensitive. I mean, not that this is a family member for either one of us, but it's still a pretty big deal. Um, you know, or an old friend where you're like struck, but you know, you are, and we are in, in, in a close sense to this and stuff. So hopefully, um, I didn't deliver that message in any sort of callous way. No, no, no. It was, I mean, it was definitely the thing. I mean, the thing is at this point, uh, 2020, notwithstanding, I mean, we've seen, unfortunately, like a lot of great, 
people of that magnitude um, or of a similar magnitude, uh, like pass on, you know, like I remember when, I remember when like, uh, like Prince died and that was a really strange day. I remember when, uh, like, I don't know, like, it's just, it's just weird, but like, I could, I could just tell because I was getting text messages from people that didn't live in California. Like it was like all over the United States. So I kind of figured it was a big deal. Like, yeah, that, that went around, uh, quick, uh, more so than at least for my world and surely for your world, uh, it went around much faster and a much deeper magnitude than, than anybody else, uh, I've seen, I think probably ever. So, you know, for obvious reasons, that's that he's, he's the guy, man. He, he is the, he is the guy on the top of the mountain, you know, and, uh, uh, I, I think I found out, um, I have this group message with, um, uh, several guys, including Rick Toon. It's it's all guys who play Rick Toon's guitars, and you know all the all the guys that are like kind of in the inner circle with that. And uh, it showed up there, um, and it, it said it didn't even directly say what happened, but uh, or, or that he had passed on. It just simply said you know something about Eddie, and you kind of knew. Uh. Uh, and when I went to, you know, I just immediately like I was home by myself, I think which is kind of impossible these days. But I was downstairs in the basement. I was sick that day um, and just kind of staying away from everybody. And uh, so I'm, I'm basically by myself and I just, you know, just, I kind of just start going, you know, yelling no. And then I went to go check it. And the news, um, the uploads from all the major news outlets were, you can look at the time, it was minutes. The guy who, who let me know, the guy that's in that, um, that group, not surprised mm -hmm. he knew sooner than probably most people would and uh yeah it's so i, I th you're probably the first person i i contacted um after that after i you know sat there for two minutes trying to um you know trying to wrap my head around that yeah. uh, so you know he was sick we knew it um uh for years off and on battling it and uh but still it just doesn't prepare you for when it actually is going to happen. And it's not like we were building up to anything either, because I hadn't heard about any kind of exact status, uh, you know, in, in quite a while. So, you know, it's really, even though we knew he was sick, it still came out of nowhere. And he's 65 years old. Yeah, it's, it's crazy kind of in retrospect, though, because I know there was an interview with Roth where he, he, didn't answer the question directly, but he still answered it. And he kind of said, you know, Ed's got his story to tell and it's not my place to talk about it. Good for him. That's the correct answer. Yeah. Like he didn't, he didn't really want to, he didn't want to go there, but he also, I think he was trying to infer that like they probably weren't going to play again. Um, well, he, without, made a, he made a statement not too long ago, um, boldly said the band is over. Yeah. yeah he, he, you know, did not mince words with that. Said flat out, the band is over. You know, and I, I took that with a certain David Lee Roth grain of salt. Um, who knows? Maybe I thought maybe they had just had a falling out. You know, that's happened before, of course. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it was taken out of context by the interviewer because he doesn't understand that, you know, Roth's got a certain flair for, for, uh, for words. Who knows? But, you know, looking back, he knew it already. You know, he um, he knew that, that uh, 
I mean, look, just because we there was a surprise that he passed doesn't mean that he was already on a path where you pretty much knew it was just a matter of time and that, you know, treatments had stopped and stuff like that. And frankly, you know what, that's none of our business. The only thing I, I we're left with is the most important stuff is the impact of the music and the legacy. And that is, there's nothing you can do to tarnish that for me. Right. I mean, you know, outside of something, you know, some sort of something that comes up, that's just whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Like the, so, cause I've been trying to, you know, that's, that's the weird thing about Ed, Edward Van Halen. Like for me, he was never not part of the scene, like as far as I've been into music. So um, he's kind of always been this omnipresent God, but like, you know, there's so many guitar players, but I still feel like in a weird way, like there's nobody like that guy. Like, like as, no. for, as for as much as like, you know, there's been people who have, uh, push technique to a certain level there's people who have like added to like sonic developments but he really was like i really do think and i know like people get really into hyperbole but it really was kind of just hendrix and him that did the kind of shit that affected that many guitar players like, yep i've been saying that now for the past week it, it's uh the only two guys that really you can name that there's a there's a before and after um, uh, existence in the guitar world and music in general yeah. is those two guys, those two guitar players. There's other artists that command that type of um, stature, like the Beatles, uh, for instance. You know, there's a before and after the Beatles for sure. There is a before and after Jimi Hendrix. There's a before and after um, Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. And uh, nobody has come since there has definitely been figures that have carried immense weight. You know, there's plenty of people tell you that the day that they heard Randy Rhodes is the day that they wanted to play the guitar, just as much as they say that about Hendrix and uh, Van Halen. But, um, well, first of all, he didn't have enough time to make that impact. He made quite an impact for the short time that he was here, just like Charlie Christian. Uh, but, uh, and yeah, there, there's another guy you can say there's a before and after is Charlie Christian, but, uh, yeah. it's just, it, Van Halen probably even more so, dare I say, and, and not even dare I say, I mean, you know, I, I get the Hendrix people are totally all about, like, there is nothing but Hendrix, and that's just not where I come from. Van I mean, Halen's it's impact, to, to me, is deeper because of the amount of time. We had him for so much longer than any of those guys I just mentioned. Yeah. Charlie Christian, Jimi Hendrix, Randy Rhodes. They all checked out early. They were all in their 20s. Yeah. It was like a five-year window. Um, yeah, so I mean, we're talking about a guy who who gave us decades, and 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 you know, shit. How many albums? How many proper studio albums? Ten or so. You know, ten proper Van Halen studio albums, and you know, there's just a there's just a a, a massive history of uh, of the music, and as well as the development of. Um, all of his uh, quote unquote inventions that we take for granted. That's what they were at the time. Now they're industry standards. Yeah. That's, that was the part that, um, that I really was like thinking about a lot, just how much of uh, the guitar industry bent or not bent, but like was changed by the kinds of stuff that he was, he was doing, you know, cause I, I remember reading through old issues of guitar player, you know, and it's like all of a sudden it's this re revolutionary thing to have like a Strat style 
guitar with like a humbucker in the bridge position and then like you know a single coil. No one did that. No yeah. one did that. He 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 said he was he was getting his balls busted. <clears throat> you know he, he he'd like to play less ball. The sound was there. Um, and I believe that he was being told that that was an old man's guitar. And, uh, but he wasn't, you know, the strap thing obviously wasn't going to work for him. So, you know, he, he went to the, the workbench and, uh, and did what he had to do. You know, it, 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 the whole point of the, of the, of the humbucker going onto the strat and being angled like a strat bridge pickup. And there's, you know, it's, there's so many things that, um, he, uh, just looked past and just did it. And that's a, that's saying a lot for, the late seventies, you know, where uh, things were what they were. They still are like that. The guitar world is still like that. It's so against change, but it's even more impressive to think at the time that he did it. And also it's not even like, you know, he didn't have the resources that we have today to probe and to research stuff. This was, you know, this was of his own doing. You know, the only guy that you could compare to, to Eddie in this respect that has had this much impact is Les Paul. Yeah. Les Paul, that's it. And, and Les Paul left us amazingly important things. I mean, Les Paul's the father of multi-track recording. Yeah. Um, he, he, you know, he didn't invent the solid body guitar, but he definitely helped perfect it. And, uh, and he gave us the Les Paul, you know, I mean, those are two monumental um, um, accomplishments right there. And that's not all he did. I can't rattle off the other stuff, but I know Les Paul's got, um, uh, they didn't give him the section in the rock and roll hall of fame for just those two things. I mean, there's an entire section dedicated to that guy Yeah, um, in there because of his accomplishments and stuff like that. And God, I can't even imagine what they're going to do now with, uh, with Eddie. You heard that quote that Les Paul supposedly said to him, right? Like the, no. he's like, apparently he said yeah there's only three people that know how to build guitars you me and leo fender fair enough i and mean the, I, think about that statement it, it's ridiculous on one level and at the same time if you look at what people play today strats tellies les pauls and the derivative yeah sure there's other things but the derivative out of the three things i just said you could probably trace back to eddie van halen in some way yeah, you know, if you're playing a Jackson or a Charvel or any sort of hot rotted guitar with a with a Floyd Rose on it, you know, all that stuff, it all veers back to Van Halen. So that's not a ridiculous statement. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was you had companies that had no affiliation with Van Halen at all, <clears throat> and when he passed, they all had statements. Like Ibanez had statements, Yamaha, they were just like you know. Then they they even said in the copy. They said, you know, he didn't work with us, but that dude was made, you know, like beyond major. That just a testament to the respect. I've, I've seen many of them, and I, I didn't feel any of them were taking advantage of any sort of gratuitous opportunity at all. I thought that they just were all done um, respectfully and properly, and they should, because if not for him, there would be some of these companies just wouldn't have any legs to stand on. There would have been no start. For instance, where would the um, aftermarket pickup um, industry be if it wasn't for him saying, hey, man, you know, look what happens when you take a pickup and you overwind it and uh, you slant it and throw it on a strat. That got people thinking, like, you know what, maybe there, I can do better than the, uh, the pickup that's on my guitar currently. And there goes, there go, you know, then there is that market. Yeah. If it weren't for him... Um, you know, the Floyd Rose thing is not his invention, That the, uh, but, but the 
connection to it, A, is, yeah, he put it on the map, but he also suggested to Floyd to put those fine tuners on the bridge. So that, that's, a, and that's a big deal. That's a, that's a game changer when it comes to that design. Uh, I, I mean, the guy's reach is just, you could just keep going and going and going. I mean, there's a whole amp industry that still looks at his amp as a, you know, a, a, a very important um, place <clears throat> in the evolution of high gain amps. Guys still use 5150s and, and you know, a, a, what do you call it? A PV, um, uh, oh God, what's the numbers? 5505 or 6550? Either one of them or both. That's just a, you know, that's just a reworked 5150 after he left PV. Then plenty of guys use both amps still. And again, that's, that's Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, those amps are, uh, are killing. ridiculous. They're killing. I, I did, I did, uh, I, I remember one session specifically doing one with, with, um, with the PV version of it. Um, it was 6505 plus, I think, and, um, or 6550. Damn, I should know this. But anyway, it was awesome. It, it was, it was, it was awesome. And it's, um, you know, it, point, it points back to uh, to him. Very last show they did was at the Hollywood Bowl, and uh, I saw that. I watched the guitar solo. You know, and I hadn't watched it before because I'd seen, you know, I'd seen him, and like I knew he was like kicking ass and stuff. But I watched it, and he, man, he really compared to older solos, like same vibe. Like he just seemed real loose, and like he was having a good time, and everything was flowing he was playing shit really fast but in a good way you know like it everything sounded really well oiled you know like it just sounded like he's supposed to sound like he didn't i think for me the one thing not knowing the person at all and just being a fan and you know like i think the thing that makes me the happiest is like he there is those press pictures that came out probably like around 2005 where he looked really rough and I was like, man, I hope he doesn't go out like that. Like, I hope he gets, you know, I hope he kind of cleans up and shit. And like, mm -hmm. not that cancer is like a better outcome, but it feels like he kind of tied together a lot of stuff. Like his, you know, he kind of like made a full return. His playing was great. According to Nuno Betancourt's Instagram post where he kind of eulogizes Edward, he said that he was talking to Michael Anthony, there was plans to do a last tour with the original band. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's um, pretty cold hard fact at this point that in 2019, that they were, they were looking to, uh, to do it. And Michael Anthony has said publicly um, recently that he was contacted. Um, yeah. And Allen's management reached out and it was going to happen, but obviously they could, they didn't go forward and they couldn't go forward and stuff. I wonder if during those Hollywood bowl shows, if he knew that that was, those were going to be it. You know, or at least for a time being, you know, that that, that he was going to have to check out for a bit. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, it it's if you watch it thinking about it, it does seem strange. But he was really connected on those things. Like, you know, because I've watched, I probably watched like 25 different solos, like just in the past couple weeks. And then in general, man, like that's like currency for a lot of us. Like, hey, I found this. Yeah, man, we pass them along all the time. Yeah, it's like between you, I'll send shit to Mark Letary, Tim Lafave. Like that's kind of how we bond, you know. Like if there's yeah. nothing really going on, it's like, well, yeah, it's fun to find the gold, you know, find one you haven't seen. Yeah, totally, man. Well, 
this was cool. Thanks for, uh, you know, having some words. Figured it'd be good to talk a little bit about EVH. It's a major, major fucking loss. Man. Yeah, I've been zombieized for, um, it's a week today. Um, what time is it? I think it's literally right around the time I got that message. Wow. Uh, it was early afternoon and stuff, so it's kind of been exactly a week. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I've never had people call me before. Um, people outside of music call me before to to send their their well wishes to me <laughs> because you know because they knew somebody significant uh in my life had, had had passed and stuff so that 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 even that speaks even more to the to the loss of, of how big it is you know to people to think and for them too you know for them to be to be connected to it and also to think like, wow, this must be really something for, for the people I know in my life that are connected to music, especially guitar players. Uh, and, and they're right. It is. This, this is the guy, man. This was, uh, this is the center of it all and stuff. And everybody's got their stories about when they first heard um, him and eruption. And I, I can think of mine, you know, I, I know my first moment putting on headphones at my brother's, my oldest brother's house. Um, when I was just getting into the guitar and, and standing in front of his record player and that coming on um, and standing there and just in disbelief and not even being able to begin to comprehend what the, what I was listening to. And so many people say the same things about that, especially eruption. It's, it's just, everybody was just slack jawed, speechless, stopping your tracks. What is that? And uh, it's uh, it, just like a lot of people are saying, it's, it's, you go right back to being that kid, you know, that, that young eight, 10, 12 year old kid. Uh, and that's awesome. There's not too many guys who can do that. Um, you know, music puts you right back to places where it first connected with you. And uh, Van Halen puts, I know for me, and, and I'm sure for everybody else, it puts you back in the best place because the music is just fun. It represents the, the best parts about music. That's going to do it for this week's episode. For more information about Chris, go to chrisbono.com. New episodes every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening.